Welcome to New Life Community Church. It's great to have you here today. I was in a restaurant a couple of months ago and I ran into a young man that I hadn't seen in a while. And I said to him, how you doing? It's good to see you. And we got to talking. He was married. I started asking about his family. He said, Pastor Mark, can I tell you something? He said, when we started attending New Life, he said, my family had had generations of living in the projects. We lived in the projects. He said, all we knew was you live off of the government on the projects. We didn't get a job outside because we depended on that. None of us owned our home. He said, we started attending the church and you challenged my father. He needed to get a job and work and pay for his bills and support his family. And at first he said he was really, that was difficult because he had to break a cycle. And he fought it, and it was challenging. He said, Pastor, I just want to tell you now, though, that was years ago that it happened. He said, I want you to know that each of us now, we own our own home. None of us have lived in the projects. We've been to college. God has done a work because you had a conversation with my father that helped him break a cycle. Break a cycle in Jesus' name. Today, I really want to talk to you about what it means to be cycle breakers. And in particular, I want to talk to you about what it means to break the cycle of debt. Break the cycle of debt. I told you last week that 77% of Americans are anxious and worried and stressed about finances. That's 77%. If we were to do a poll right here, about, you know, 77% means that if we were to divide this congregation up, that little section there isn't worried. Everybody else is worried. Go ahead. Wave at me, the non-worried. Uh, there you go. Debt is the number one factor when it comes to divorce. Money is the number one reason that couples argue. If we were to put a a microphone in your car or a microphone in your house and you're a married couple, chances are that when you get into the most arguments, it's about money. There's usually someone in the family that's saying, hey, we need to save more, and someone else saying, hey, we just, why are you so tight? I told you we didn't, couldn't afford that. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, you, but you said we could afford what I had, but you went out and bought what you had. Couples fight about finances more than any other topic and subject. They fight about finances. And by the way, the number two cause of divorce following only infidelity is fighting over finances. So I just want you to know that finances and debt affects people in very, very substantial ways. In fact, not only that, if you are straddled with debt today and have a lot of debt that hangs over you, if you're feeling the pressure of it, they've done studies and they realize that it affects our mental health. In fact, there's a high link between suicide and debt. People who commit suicide are eight more, eight more times likely to be in debt than those that don't commit suicide. In other words, what it's telling us is that when you live under debt, 
bills that you can't pay for a long period of time, it starts to affect your mental health. It starts to stress you out. You start to feel this heavy, dark cloud over your life that seems like you'll never be able to get out of it. It affects your marriage. If you're married, you, you start arguing over it. It affects your children because you can't give them the attention that you need. It affects the way that you view life because you can't say no to overtime because you owe so much that you it limits your choices that you have and so many people find themselves enslaved joyless in very difficult marriages stressed over their children solely because they haven't been able to manage their finances in a way that keeps them out of debt you know, God has a lot to say about finances. People say, well, what does the Bible have to say about finances and money? Well, you can read the Bible, and if you did a count from Genesis to Revelation, you would discover that there are 40 verses that talk about baptism. There are 275 verses that speak on prayer. There's 350 verses that talk about faith. There's 650 verses that speak about love, and this may surprise you. There are literally 2,350 verses that relate specifically to finances and material possessions. The Bible has a lot to say about finances because we spend a lot of time at work making money, then we spend a lot of time spending our money, and we are deeply affected by finances almost at every level of life. We live in a nation right now where the majority of people in this nation have succumbed to the culture value of being in debt. In fact, as of October, which was last month of 2021, our nation is $28 trillion in debt. Let me say that again. $28 trillion in debt. And some of you are like, Pastor, that means nothing. I went to public school. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let me do the math for you. $28 trillion divided by the population of North America, which is about 350 million people, means that every single one of us, from children into elderly, we would all owe about $85,000 in debt. So what I want you to know is that we live in a country that has embraced a culture of debt. We live in a society that has embraced a culture of debt. Chances are that you were raised in a family that's embraced a culture of debt. Yet many of us are swimming under the pressure of indebtedness and more and more in slavery to those that loan to us because we haven't learned how to break the cycle of debt. I want to take your attention this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, is the passage I want to focus on as we talk about what it means to be a cycle breaker in the area of debt. The Apostle Paul, speaking to young Timothy, he was probably about 30, in his early 30s, when Paul wrote to him. He says to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let me break this down for you and let's talk about what it means to break the cycle of debt. What, to be, what it means to be a cycle breaker when it comes to debt. We have to ask ourselves, first of all, what is the mindset that leads to debt? Many of us believe that people get in debt because they don't make enough money. When I talk to people that are highly in debt, like Doug who shared, he was $160,000 in debt. When we talk to most people, they will say, well, my problem is I don't make enough money. If I made more money, I wouldn't be in debt. Or you say, I live in Chicago. The taxes are high. The property taxes are high. They take so much off of my state and, and uh, federal uh, taxation. Prices are high over the well. I'm in debt because I live in Chicago. My guess is that if you move to Montana, you would probably still be in debt. Because the way we manage our money is not based on our location, and in fact, the amount of money that we make is not the main factor of whether we're in debt or not. It's how we manage what we have that typically causes us to go in debt. And so, in writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. He's trying to tell Timothy, Timothy, you need to understand that the way you think about money and the attitudes that you have about money, they can either lead you to be a great blessing or they can actually destroy your life spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. I believe that there's some attitudes that lead us to debt. Let me give you a couple of those attitudes. Number one, discontentment. The Apostle Paul said godliness with contentment is great gain. What is discontentment? Discontentment is looking at what we have, what we possess, our circumstances, and being unhappy with them, desiring that we would have other circumstances. In fact, let me tell you this. Advertisers feed off of this idea that you are discontent and that their product can make you content. Think about it. Advertisers have known that forever. They operate with the assumption that if I can make you feel discontent or if I can tap into your sense of discontentment and that if you can believe that my product makes you content, then I can have you buy my product thinking that it will solve your problem of discontentment. Well, you've seen it, haven't you? On social media and television, let's say they're advertising a facial cream. And they'll say to the ladies, especially as they say, hey, have you looked in the mirror recently? Or one of those magnifying mirrors, and you just seen, and they'll show a picture of a lady all wrinkled up, sad, 
and uh, looking like she's just had a rough day. And they say, you know what? When you look in the mirror, do you feel like you've seen extra wrinkles on your face? And it affects your confidence. And when you go to work, you can't talk to people. And has it been months and months since you've gotten a date because you just don't feel confident with being able to call someone up and go and talk to them because you're just embarrassed about your wrinkles and your sagging face? And then it'll say, Lauren, after two weeks of using this cream, and they'll show you the picture. She's smiling. She's glowing. A lot of makeup. She's lost 20 pounds. And after two weeks of using this cream, and now, and they'll show a boyfriend beside her, she feels confident to date now, and she's gotten a better job, and she can face the world in a brand new way. And you look at that, and you say, I haven't been dating for a while. I need that cream. That's what I need. Go buy me some. What the advertisers are telling you is, are you discontent with your circumstances? Buy our product and you will be content. Discontentment causes us to buy things that we don't need to impress people that we don't like with money that we don't have. Not only discontentment, secondly, materialism. Materialism is this idea that I want more and more. I want to have things because things make me feel good, and I want better things that make me feel better. And studies tell us that the adrenaline or endorphins that we get from buying a new thing does, in fact, make us happy for a little time. But it quickly fades shortly, usually about two or three weeks, depending on the purchase, our endorphins go down and we're back to normal after we bought what we bought. Number, th uh, number three, pride and identity issues. Oftentimes we're struggling with pride or identity issues. We're trying to feel like we're successful and so therefore we purchase things that make us feel better about ourselves. And we think if I just wore those clothes, if I just had those sneakers, if I just had that car, if I were able to, to, to get that electronic and people would see me and think, wow, they're successful, look at what they have. And so we want to tie our identity into the things that we possess and we think if I can clothe the right way, drive the right thing, have the right electronics, then maybe people would look at me in a different way and think, oh, they're cool, oh, they're successful, oh, I want to be like them. And lastly, self-control. Self-control, some of you can re relate to this. Some of you, just when you're feeling a little bit down, when you're a little bit depressed, when you've had a bad day at work, you think, you know what I need today? I need to go shopping. <laughs> because internally you know that if you buy something, it gives you an in just an immediate sense of boost, like, I feel better. I got something. Something about walking around with a new pair of something. You get home and you say, well, did you need that? Well, yeah, I, I needed this. You needed the endorphins that it gives you. You really didn't need it. You put it in your closet and with another 50 pairs of shoes. My wife sometimes will buy something and she says, don't you like this? I said, yeah. Don't you have something like that already? She says, no, this is different. See that little stripe there? It's different than the... And I'm like, uh, it looks the same to me. <laughs> you see, and I acknowledge that usually it's these attitudes that lead us to indebtedness, but sometimes it's something more ominous like sickness, 
that doesn't allow you to work the way you want to work or a divorce that was nasty and took half of the things that you had and you paid a lot of money to go through a very difficult divorce or maybe it was a layoff that caused you to go months and months and have to tap into your savings and all the economic things that you had or maybe it was an accident that happened in your life and then suddenly you're not able to work or maybe it's a mental health issue that did not allow you to be able to work and engage in the work that you wanted to work and sometimes there's issues like that that also accelerate our downslide into this cycle of indebtedness. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, I want you to understand that one of the safeguards that will protect you from being sucked into the vortex of allowing money, the way you manage your money or debt, to consume your life and destroy you is to develop a safeguard of godliness with contentment. What is godliness? Well, godliness is our ability to engage the world in a God-centered way as opposed to a flesh-centered way. So we're engaging the world saying, God, I'm engaging the world from your perspective, not from just a normal cultural flesh perspective. And so when you have a God-centered way of approaching the world and you have contentment, what is contentment? Here's the definition of contentment. Finding rest in God and His resources for your life. When I have a sense of rest because I'm trusting God for who I am, His resources, there's a sense of inner contentment, a sense of peace, a sense that I, I don't have to try to get this to give me peace. I don't have to try to achieve this to make me happy. But I'm already, I know who I am in God. There's a sense of contentment. It doesn't mean that it takes away ambition to work hard. It doesn't mean that it destroys my ability to want to achieve things. It just means that I'm not driven by this incompleteness in my life. I'm driven because I'm already complete, but I want to accomplish things for His name, for His glory, and make something of my life, but it means that I'm already operating with a sense of contentment. Dave Ramsey, who does a lot of, he's a Christian a financial counselor, he says, it is human nature to want it and to want it now. It is also a sign of immaturity. Debt is a means to obtain the I want it before we can afford them. So the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to safeguard yourself with godliness, a God-centeredness, with contentment in your life because that is great gain as you approach the issue of finances. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. Notice, the Bible is ne never has to say anything bad about money. Some people have this idea that owning money is a bad thing, and the Bible never teaches that. Uh, the Bible, in fact, teaches that how we manage our wealth can do a lot of good, help a lot of people. In fact, those that live well should provide for their family. In fact, it says if you... If you don't provide for your family, it says you're worse than an unbeliever. There is, it's not a bad thing to have money, to own money, to provide money. But it also says that when we love money, when money becomes our idol, 
When money substitutes the place of God, when money is the highest thing in our priority list, when that is what we live for, when all of our decisions revolve around money, then we've made it an idol in our life and it leads to all kinds of ruining of our soul. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Number two, write this down. Why you need to change your thinking about debt. Some of us are in a cycle of debt right now. Your body is suffering the toll of not bad eating, but your debt. Your relationship is suffering the toll of that angst, anxiety, and anger that seems to spark very rapidly because you are so stressed out about finances. Your children can barely spend time with you because you have to work so many hours and when you are with them, your mind is preoccupied with your work and with making money and how you're going to pay your bills. You find yourself sometimes making money and feeling like, I have no money, even though I should have money and feel like I have money. Where does it all go? In part because you're overspending on interest and finances and debt because you have gotten yourself into a cycle of debt that is robbing the very things in your life that matter most. And so this is how we change our thinking about debt. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10 says, People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish things and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. When you start reading the Bible and ask yourself, what is God's attitude towards debt? You can start reading from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll start to discover that God has a lot to say about debt. Almost anywhere in the Bible that you see God talk about debt, you will see the themes start to emerge of release, cancel, paid, and forgiven. For example, Proverbs 22 verse 7 says, The rich... Rule over the poor. And the borrower, the person that borrows and gets in debt, is a slave to the lender. That's a strong word. A servant to the lender. In other words, when you borrow money that you don't have from someone else that's charging you interest and you have to pay it back, then the person that you borrowed from starts exercising a control and an authority and a pressure over your life that dictates and makes you do things that maybe you don't want to do, but because you're a slave to the lender, you suddenly start losing the freedom that was yours to have. Psalms 37 verse 21 says this, The wicked borrow... And do not repay, but the righteous give generously. He's contrasting two people's management of money. He's saying that if you've allowed sort of this unhealthy, ungodly 
approach to money, then chances are that you'll be heavily, 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 heavily in debt and won't be able to pay the debts that you owe. He said that's not godliness. The godly are actually in a position and have positioned themselves in a place where they have surplus and margin actually to loan out. We're talking about what God thinks about debt. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord's Prayer. Some of you have prayed this prayer since you were very young. You've oftentimes prayed it without thinking about what it says, but do you realize that sandwiched in the middle of the prayer is a section on debt? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Is that talking about sandwiches? No, that's talking about provision. Exemplified in bread, which is the basic necessity of life, it's not talking about French bread. It's not talking about what you buy at the store. It's talking about God. Give us today what we need to survive and live. And then it goes on and it says, And forgive us our trespasses or debts as we forgive those who trespass or are indebted against us. So you get a little bit of the heart of God when he talks about debt, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. He's basically saying, God, the way that you treat us is that you cancel our debt, you forgive us our debt, and we pray that we would have the power and ability also to forgive people of their debts. Because God does not want anybody in debt, emotional, physical, or financial debt. God is a debt-canceling God. He's a God that does not want you mastered by other things. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Deut means five. In this book of Deuteronomy, there's laws as to how the Jewish people should govern the land. God was giving them the rules of interaction and how to manage money in this theocracy. Theocracy is when God rules a culture. We live in a democracy, which is people managing a culture and political power. In the Old Testament, it was the prophet that ruled and God that established a theocracy. And it's interesting that in the rules that he gives about debt, I don't have time to break them all down, but in Deuteronomy chapter 15, he explains how every seven years, people who were working off their debt were to be released and forgiven of what they owed every seven years. Because God did not want people perpetually in debt. So in Israel, money was always loaned with the understanding that on the seventh year, debts would be canceled. So there was no long-term debt in that sense. Money could never be borrowed or owed more than six years at a time because the seventh year it would be set free. Why? Why did God establish that? Because God didn't want someone to be forever indebted, forever a slave, paying and paying, and never able to get their head above water. 
Now think about that contrasted to our culture. Let's just, let me say it this way. Many people say, well, Pastor, I put stuff on credit card, but I pay it off at the end of the month. If you do, great. Congratulations. But Card Track tells us that 60% of people don't. That's 6-0. So let's just do the math a little bit here. If you were to borrow $1,000 on credit card and you were to make the minimal payment and the credit card charges you an interest, which is normal for credit cards, of, say, 19.8%, that means that if you just paid the minimum payment on $1,000, it would take you eight years to pay it off. Eight. And at the end of those eight years, on $1,000 that you borrowed, you will have paid $2,023 to borrow $1,000. So you will have paid double the amount, and it will have taken you eight years to pay it off. Why? Listen, credit cards don't get into the business. They're not a charity. Hello. Some of you are like, I got a credit card. They're so nice. No, they're not. That's a business. Read the fine print. They're not a non-for-profit. They are a very for-profit, and they're taking really advantage of people that say, I want it now, I can't afford it, and you stop asking yourself, can I afford to buy this? You start asking yourself, can I afford the monthly payment? And so when you go to buy a car, you walk into a dealership and they say, yeah, we have this car, but boy, you would look good in this car. <laughs> See the leather seats, the latest engineer, the mechanics. Well, this is, this is state of the art. Can I just, just, no, I can't afford that. And I just sit in it at least. Yeah, you sit in it. Boy, that, they say, that's you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that yells you all the way, yeah, but I don't know the monthly pay, I don't know. How much is the price tag? Wow, that's a lot of money. Hey, hey, don't worry, it's no money down. Oh, really? And no payments for three months. Wow, no money down, no payments for three months? Yeah, they don't tell you that after three months you're going to pay $600 payments and that over several years it's going to cost you thousands upon thousands of dollars. And so you look at it, you can't afford it, but you say, I'll put it on credit. If I can manage the monthly payments, then I'll do okay. And then you get into the monthly payments and you forgot to include the interest and the insurance rates and what it would take and suddenly you find yourself overloaded in debt with monthly payments and you're barely keeping up with monthly payments and now you can't go to work on, on uh, to church on Sunday because you have to work overtime all the time. You can't enjoy life because you're under pressure. You feel the stress of it, the weight of it, and you are a slave to the lender. Well, if I haven't convinced you yet that that is bad, let me just give you a couple other quick reasons here. 
that presumes on your future. It presumes that you're going to have a job, that things aren't going to change, or that you're going to get a, a, a raise maybe. That lowers the future standard of living because now you are paying on interest that you have. That focuses on the facade of decisions rather than in real life decisions. You don't ask, can you afford? You say, can I afford the interest payments that I'm making? That leaves people at the mercy of the power of compounded interest that I just explained. Debt could delay God's plan for your life. Listen, there are people right now, some of you, that should be married, but you have delayed marriage two, three, four years because you say, I'm waiting till I get out of debt. Well, hello, we're going to wait forever at this pace. Or the ability to go on a missions trip or to change your life or to throw yourself into something that may be more significant, but you're so in debt that now you can't say yes to the mission field. You can't say yes to marriage. You can't say yes to moving or doing something that maybe you really enjoy doing because you have a standard of life that is indebted and now you've eliminated the choices because you are bound to a cycle of debt. Debt clouds the line that separates wants, desires, and needs. Debt encourages impulse buying and overspending. Debt stifles resourcefulness because it's not about, hey, can I be resourceful to earn the money to pay this? No, put it on a credit card. Debt teaches children that the world's method of managing our money is normal. Many of us have adopted to this lifestyle of debt because we saw our parents engage in leverage debt and you are teaching your children the same thing and we have normalized a culture of being in debt in our society and we're paying the price in our marriages with our children in our spiritual life. We are paying the price of it. The Apostle Paul emphasizes to Timothy, Timothy, a lot of people are trapped, have, have thrown themselves into harmful desires and plunged men into ruin and destruction because of the way they view and manage their finances. I want you to hear me well. As your pastor, I want you to break a cycle that keeps you enslaved, and I want you to walk in freedom. I believe that we as the people of God cannot cave in to the culture norm. We need to embrace God's way of managing our finances. So you say, Pastor, I want to, but how do I break it? Well, let me talk to you lastly about how to break the cycle of debt. How to break it. Before you break it, you have to understand that it's not God's will. Before you break it, you have to understand. You say, well, Pastor, is it a sin to use a credit card? No, it's not a sin. If you put something in a credit card, put a trip, or put, it's not a sin. But I'm going to tell you, but to allow yourself to be enslaved to debt will wreak havoc on your life and lead you sometimes to sinful behavior because you allow someone else to control your life. And so it tells us in 
scripture, and I'm going to give you just a couple, couple uh, very simple steps to start in motion the debt liberating practices of breaking a cycle. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. You need to say no. Go ahead, practice saying no. Some of you need to learn to say no. You need to learn to say no to consumer debt. What do I mean by consumer debt? Well, there's certain debt that's not bad debt. Most people can't go out and, and, and plop down $250,000 or $300,000 to buy a house. You're going to have to get a mortgage, and you're going to have to... But, but that's investment debt. In other words, your house should uh, accumulate value over time. You have to live somewhere. That's not consumer debt. Consumer debt is what you wear, what you eat, or what becomes disposable. Those are the things that, as soon as you spend them, they're really worth nothing. You, you, you wear that sweater twice, and you have to sell it on your resale website. But it's not something that you can give back. It's consumer debt. And you need to learn to say no to consumer debt. You say, well, I, I can't. It's just so hard. I go, and I just feel the impulse. And it's like something's guiding me and says, you know, that, that dress is yours. You have to buy it. Let me, let me just say this. Do whatever you have to do. I know people that have cut up their credit cards because they couldn't say no. I know people that have gone to the envelope method where they put money. If the money's not there, they just don't buy it. Get an accountability. If you're married, you need to sit down with your spouse and you need to determine what are our priorities, what will we spend, and we need to be in agreement together on these priorities of what we're going to do. Say no to consumer debt. Again, I've read this verse to you. Let me read it again. The rich rule over the poor and the borrow is a servant to the lender. So learn to say no to things that you can't afford. Learn to buy things in cash and not put it on credit. In fact, they tell us us that we spend 25 to 30 percent more when we put it on credit card. You know why? It doesn't hurt as much. If something costs 120 dollars, boy, to take out that 20 and say 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, 120, it hurts a little bit more. But you know, with the card, it's just ching ching. You don't see it, you don't touch it. It just feels easy. I'll pay it next month. So learn to say no, whatever it takes. Number two, this is really important. Pay what you owe as quickly as possible. You need to wage war on debt. You need to say, I will attack my debt ferociously. I will do what I can to eliminate my debt I will start, listen, start with the little ones. You know, if you, if you have your Macy's card and you owe 120, start with that one. That one you feels like, and once you, once you get it, then celebrate it, not by going out and buying some more, but just celebrate it by uh, giving a high five or something, or um, don't go say, hey, I did so well, let me go buy a new coat. No, celebrate it. Start with the little, start working on it. Celebrate it when you can, but you need to aggressively begin to pay down your debt. You need to say, I will get out of debt. It is not God's will that I live in debt. I will not pay to other people. I will not get myself more and more in debt. 
It tells us in Psalms 37, verse 21, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. And so you need to determine, I will get out of debt. Listen, I've been preaching on this topic for a long time. Over the years, I've had people come up to me, many, many people actually, and say, Pastor, three years ago, you preached about this. It took us three years to do it, but we eliminated, sometimes it's $100,000, and they'll come up and say, we just want to say thank you. We have just paid off $100,000. It's helping our marriage. Doug said $160,000 he had to work on. I've seen people all over the board in this, but you need to make a determination. I will not live with debt on me. I will determine to owe no man anything at all. And then although this may seem strange to add in there, I want to throw it in there because I believe it flows with it. You need to practice generosity. Help someone else when you can. Ephesians says, knowing whatever to do to the good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Listen, we don't get out of debt just to accumulate money. We get out of debt so that we can walk in freedom. And when we walk in freedom... We should have the ability when someone is going on a mission trip to say, hey, let me give you $500. Or someone that needs a car, you could pay for a used car for them. Or if we have a, when we take up a food collection for our food pantry that, by the way, fed 2 million people, 2 million people in the last two years. Why? Not because we have to, but because we want to and because we can in Jesus' name. We want to be in a place of freedom. By the way, let me, I said this last week, let me reiterate again. We don't owe one penny of this building to any bank because we decided we don't want to live in debt. It freezes up to give. It freezes up to focus on ministry. We don't owe, owe so under the weight of it. We're able to be more generous with what we do. We're able to focus on mission. Why? Because we don't have a slave master telling us what to do. You know, when I was upstairs before I preached the first message, I was just looking over my notes, and I wasn't planning on saying this, but I felt like the Lord, the Lord led me to also speak about this. So let me give you a bonus here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, says this, Jesus canceled the record of debt we owed by nailing it to the cross. You see, the whole heart of Jesus is to cancel our debts. It's in the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the final words that he said was, to tell us die. The Romans didn't understand what he was saying. To tell us die. Our English Bibles translate it, it is finished. And some people assumed, well, you know, his life was done, so he says, it's over. That's not what that word means. The word to tell us die, if we were to translate it more officially, means 
paid in full. It's the word that was used for business transactions. When someone went in and paid off their land, it would be stamped basically to telestai, paid in full. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, paid in full. Colossians says, Jesus canceled the record of the debt. What debt are we talking about? Listen to me. We're talking about the debt of your transgression and my transgression against a holy God. We're talking about the fact that you and I have accumulated an incredible debt against a holy God that we could not pay even if we spent our entire life trying to work it off with good works and charity works, that we could not pay it off. In fact, listen, it was that debt that would condemn us. It was that debt that would be held against us. And Jesus died on a cross to pay a debt that you and I could never pay. If there was another way, listen, Jesus would not have come. Jesus was the unblemished Lamb of God that paid a price that no one could pay but Him because He was spotless and without sin. And when He died on that cross, He paid for every hateful transgression, thievery, envy, egotism in your life. You could never pay for it before a holy God. You could try to work for it, you could try to earn it, but you could never pay for it. In fact, if you're trying to pay for it right now, then you are indebted and you'll never pay for it. Jesus paid for it in full. But listen to me. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. He paid for it in full, but it's not yours unless you receive it. Some people say, well, Jesus died and just cleansed the whole world of his sin. No, that's not how it works. He died for the world, but it's only those who receive it that are able to have their debt canceled. Jesus, John 13, John, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave His Son, but we have to receive the gift. If you are here and you've never received the gift, you are still in debt to God. And that debt will send you to an eternity without God. Because it's a debt too big for you to pay. You say, well, Pastor, I fast, I give, I walk little ladies across the street, I try to, I, I, I volunteer at the food pantry, and I'm trying to do a lot of good to make up for my bad. You can never do good enough to make up for your bad. You can never, never, never pay the debt. It's too big for you to pay. As long as you try to work for it and earn it, it's yours. It was paid in full. You receive it by when you come to Jesus and say, I cannot pay my debt. You're the only way that I can have forgiveness through God in my life. And so in faith, I receive that gift. I repent. I make you Lord of my life. Come and forgive me of my sins and change me from the inside out. That is salvation. That is being born again. That is our debt being paid for. Jesus is a debt canceler. You say, well, Pastor, I've committed a lot of sins. Listen, it doesn't matter where you slept, where you've been, how much time you spent at 26 and Cal. 
There's no debt that Jesus cannot pay. And I have to add to this, and this is the hard part for some of you. So I would say this. If you have not received the debt cancellation of salvation, then I have to tell you, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you are under a tremendous debt to God that condemns you. Listen, you are condemned right now, not because God wants to condemn you, but because you have not received you have condemned yourself by not receiving the gift of debt cancellation. You say, Pastor, I've been a good person my whole life. It, it doesn't matter. You haven't been good enough for God. No, no, I, I'm really good, Pastor. You're not that good. <laughs> not compared to holy God. The second thing I want to say, and I know this is not directly related to finances, but it's related to the heart of God and breaking cycles, is that the Bible says this, if you have been forgiven by God, then it necessitates that you would be a forgiver of others. In fact, listen, listen, listen. This is important for you to understand. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, it says, and if you do not forgive those, if God has forgiven you and you refuse to forgive those, then you will not receive the fullness of what God wants to give in your life. Jesus talked about the parable of someone that goes, has a big debt, and he's forgiven, and then he goes, and someone owes him a little something, and he's choking him, give it to me, and wants to send him in prison, and the master says, oh, if he's doing that, send him to prison. Here's what I want you to know. Listen, God's culture is a debt-forgiven culture, and this is hard to hear because I, I, I talked to, yeah, I talked to a brother this morning who, someone very dear to them, was shot and killed by this train, and he said, I'm working through forgiveness. Let me tell you this. It is God's will, whoever has hurt you, damaged you, there are people here that have experienced sexual abuse, there are people here that have had fathers abandon them, there are people here who have been cheated on by a spouse, abandoned by someone that promised that they would be faithful to them. You've been hurt, disappointed, deceived. And I know this is hard to hear. When I talk about forgiveness, I'm not saying that you're saying it's okay what they did or that you minimize it or that you excuse it or that you shift the blame. What you are saying is, my debt was forgiven me, and because I have been forgiven of my debt, then I choose in Jesus' name to not hold resentment or unforgiveness. I choose to forgive even my enemies and let God deal with justice, but I choose to forgive even my enemies because I will not live, I will not live holding people in debtor's prison. And I know that's hard, but some of you, because you haven't forgiven, you've brought it into your marriage, 
Your children suffer the brunt of it because there's anger and stress and resentment and bitterness. The Bible says that a root of bitterness can come in and poison the entire self. And I'm just saying that the culture of God is debt forgiveness. It's God's culture. It's the culture of the kingdom. So as I close this time together, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. This morning, I'm going to open up this, we call this an altar. It's a place where we come and pray. I'm going to open up this altar for those that need to come. And if you feel comfortable, get on your knees. Let me tell you whom I'm inviting to come this morning to get on their knees. If you are here today and you say, Pastor Mark, I have never received the gift of forgiveness of my sins and debt before God. I've never bowed my knee and said, Lord, I receive your gift of forgiveness. I declare that Jesus is the only one that can save me and wash me. I give my life to you to wash me, cleanse me from my past, and be Lord of my life. There's no other way to get this forgiveness of your sins. If you, let me be clear about this. If you have never done that, you stand today condemned. Condemned by a debt that you cannot pay. And when you stand before the judge at your death, you will be condemned before the judge of the living and the dead. Not because you were bad, but because you never received the gift of forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. You need to understand that. If you've never made that decision and you say, Pastor, if I were to die today, I think I would stand condemned before God because I've never done that. I'm going to ask that Pastor Mike would just come out. If when I give the invitation, you say, I, I, I believe I still stand condemned. I've never received that gift through Jesus comes through believing, through repenting, and saying, I receive that gift today. There's no other way to Jesus. If, if, if you believe the Bible, if you're a Christian, if you embrace Christianity, there is no other way to be right with God except through that way. Then I would, as soon as we open this up, I would make a beeline to Pastor Mike and say, I'm still in debt. I need forgiveness. And he's going to lead you in how to pray Jesus would be Lord of your life and forgive you. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I've been living with resentment, unforgiveness. It eats away at my joy. It pollutes my spirit. When I hear the name of that person, I want to spit. They don't deserve forgiveness, and I'm, I'm, let me say this. I'm not saying that they deserve anything, but I'm saying that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you didn't deserve to be forgiven, and God did anyways. And I don't want you to be bound to debt or to hold anybody else in debtor's prison. It's for your sake and for your freedom that you need to release.
And some of you need to get on your knees and say, God, I, this has been hard for me to do, but I'm letting go. I'm forgiving. I'm releasing my resentment, my anger, my unforgiveness. I'm asking, I'm, I'm, I'm giving vengeance and justice over to you. You can handle that, but I'm releasing. Some of you need to do that. You cannot live, you cannot live as a follower of Jesus, holding people in debtor's prison. You'll be convicted about it. You won't be able to live the life that God has called you to. And some of you need to let go. The third group of people I'm calling forward are those of you that say, Pastor, I never even realized how bad debt is for my life. But today as you've spoken, and I know that God doesn't want me to be in debt, I'm making a decision to get out of debt. It may take me a year, two years, three years, but I'm making a decision to get out of debt, pay off my debt to be debt-free. I'll let you know, Pastor, when it happens. But you have to make a decision. Say, I will not live a slave to debt. All right, as the worship team begins to sing, I'm going to open up this altar. If you, need to, if, if you say, I'm still in debt, I haven't given my life to Jesus, I need the debt of my condemnation to be paid for. If there's someone you need to forgive, you need to make your way to this altar, or if you're making a decision to get out of debt today, then this altar is open. You can start coming forward right now, because I know there's a bunch of people that Lord is working with and dealing with. We're going to sing right now as people make their way forward.